a lot of them. Ice on me, I'm popping. Try and get like me. Alrighty, we are live. Episode 52 of Stick With Your Dreams. We got John Sherwin, co-founder of Hydrant. Um, I am a huge fan of your product, your brand, your company. See it all over the place on the West Coast. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm also a fan of your product and uh, was just recently tried it out of my grocery store. Epic. I'm, uh, I, I really, uh, you're, you're mentioning that you uh, you saw them in your, in your neighborhood. I appreciate that. Um, so... Anyway, John, um, it's been a long time coming. Glad we could finally make this happen. Um, you've got a really interesting background, and I'm, I'm really pumped to dive in. Um, but can you just share a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Um, and then how did you make the transition into CPG? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, I'm a half English, half American. I was born over here in the States, but uh, grew up in the UK. Studied biology at Oxford. I'm a bit of a science nerd. And... Um, kind of after college, always knew that I wanted to be somewhere in the entrepreneurial world. I didn't really know what, but it felt like the right place to go was Silicon Valley to learn as much as possible, as fast as possible. Um, so I moved out to the Bay Area, took a job at a company that made software tools for scientists and did a couple of years there, just kind of learning, you know, what, what is a fast growth startup look like um, and kind of what are, the, what are the different experiences you can have there. Um, and then after that, I quit my job without knowing what I was going on to next, but knowing that I was kind of ready to increase the pace of learning by going out on my own. Um, and I effectively realized that I'd been trying to solve this hydration problem for uh, years since college and that none of the products on the market that I could find either in the UK or in the USA were hitting or meeting all of my needs. And so I decided to, to make it. I have no background in CPG before this. Um, so that's definitely been a, a steep learning curve. But uh, that, that was kind of how I, I came to be in the CPG space. So I really want to dive into like how you were hydrating. But before we do that, I, was, I, I saw that you did some research um, for the Oxford Silk Group um, and on silkworm silk properties. Can you just share? I think that so often um, really unrelated experiences can tie in and weave in. Uh, to, to, to businesses that you're building or, you know, new projects, et cetera. But can you share like a little bit about that, a little bit about the nanotech Inc, uh, about nanotech Inc and, and your work in, in tech and how that all maybe transitioned um, or benefited you as you jumped into D2C? Sure. So I think, so the Silk Group was um, kind of part of my degree. I was working within this, this lab at the University of Oxford and they studied all things silk, spider silk, silkworm silk, um, and I effectively, this was a sort of a taster of academia. So if you're studying in the sciences, you get the opportunity to work within a lab and see if the academic world is for you. Um, unequivocally, it is not for me, but the processes that go into it, I have a tremendous appreciation for. So uh, as an example, I was just doing research on a very specific like tensile strength of silkworm silk. It was like one piece of a much broader study that the whole lab was working on. And I was doing you know, relatively rote tasks within that, but supporting this bigger goal of you know, discovering properties of silk that we could apply to different use cases in the world. Um, then post-college, yeah, I, I tend to skip over. I briefly spent some time working in this nanotechnology business, uh, specifically learned to write patents, um, not as a lawyer, but kind of like 
in a scrappy startup way. How do we take this technology that we're working on? Specifically, we were making uh, nano bubbles, these tiny bubbles that you put into water. Um, and that water then has various applications in the uh, biological world um, that it can be used for. Now, anything actual, related to hydration or just fun, like functional nano bubbles or? Nothing hydration specific. You could put them in water and you could drink that water. Um, it was more though for things like cleaning, uh, sort of a gentle cleaning action um, or delivering more oxygen to plants uh, when you are watering the plants. And I, I mean, I think part of the reason why I left was that I, there were still some big questions around whether that technology like really did uh, work. And, and that was sort of a learning for me is you want to join at the right moment did I want to spend the next 10 years working in a very academic setting, trying to like build the studies to prove the technology out? Or do I want to work at something that's like one year away from that finish period where, hey, we have the studies, now it's just a, a question of commercializing this technology and like convincing people that it, that it really does work and, and sharing the results of the study. Um, and so for me, the learning is really like academia and that research process, hugely valuable. And I appreciate that work. It's not the type of work that I want to do myself. Um, and so like to, to like draw that to where we are with Hydrant, our research process at Hydrant is very much standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before us. These people who've done the research into any given ingredient and function that we may make a product for. So as an example, you know, we recently launched our sleep product. Um, one way I could do that is look at our existing product, look at uh, what customers were telling us about it and look at what's on the market for sleep and say, great, melatonin seems like a good ingredient. Let's just use melatonin, add it to our hydration mix, bam, done. Um, but that's not how we like to approach it. In this case, our customers were saying, hey, I drink hydrant, the regular kind, before bed, and it means I wake up less frequently to go to the bathroom. And I love it, couldn't live without it. And we're like, huh, this is interesting. We did not make the product for this, but yeah. our customers have naturally found a use case that we didn't really think of. Um, so why don't we make a product specific, specifically for that sleep moment, and how can we design it to be the best possible product? That's when we go into the academic literature. We say, okay, we're trying to solve for a good night's sleep. So that entails staying asleep, falling asleep, uh, the ritual before bed, which helps with falling asleep. And what are the like first five to 10 ingredients we should be looking at that serve that functional purpose? So yes, melatonin is one of them but should we be using three milligrams, five milligrams, 10 milligrams? Like there are all these product decisions we're making. And to answer those questions, um, like which ingredients should we include, which ones shouldn't we include, we always will go back to the academic studies so that that first pillar of our product philosophy, which is efficacy, does the product do what it says it does, is always like number one item on my list to get done. Either you feel the difference when you drink it, or there is a wealth of academic data backing up that like in the long run, this ingredient does what it says it does. Um, so that, that's where like, that's how I would tie in this sort of research background to what we do now. It is very much the DNA of our product development process. Um, you know, an end consumer doesn't necessarily need to know that all that work has happened. And you know, I'm grateful to all the scientists who are doing that research work that we're able to then leverage to build great products. But also, I mean, <clears throat> there's so much I just wanna to touch on there a, your passion and obsession with efficacy and actually providing function and delivering on what you're promising to your customer is just going to translate to any extension of any product that you put out into the market. People trust you that you're doing and your, you know, your team is doing the right. work and, and the actual legwork versus just relying on marketing and brand to 
you know, create a great tasting product. And, and oftentimes, um, especially in this category and hydration, I mean, you're talking, I was a Powerade, Gatorade kid, like you, you name it. Um, all I, there was a lot of uh, mental work happening with, with my hydration when it was really just a ton of sugar um, and right. water. Um, so, you know, with all that being said, can we talk a little bit about the history of hydration? Let's like go back water, Gatorade, Powerade, Propel, and then, you know, what I think is like liquid IV, hydrant, element, a bunch of really unique hydration um, products. But what's really this evolution of hydration and, and where are you guys at um, in, in really pioneering that? Yeah. So I guess that so water's been around forever. No need to, to get into that piece. <laughs> but uh, I believe Gate, yeah. So that the first sports drink. Um, which I think Gatorade does lay claim to, was, I believe, in the 1950s, there was an academic in Florida who um, started playing around with electrolytes and hydrating the local sports team, and it worked really well to keep people on the field. Um, and that, that was sort of step one into bringing electrolytes into the world of hydration beyond just water. And like the science behind that is simple. When you sweat, you lose electrolytes as well as water if you just put the water back in you're not replacing what you lost and you're not going to feel great because electrolytes are really important to so many different processes in your body. Um, so once that was working and I, I don't know the specific timeline around when that was bought by one of the big, yeah, yeah, of know, course. global conglomerates. Um, but uh, subsequently another brand from the other big beverage player was like, well, we need to get into this space too. And so then, uh, you know, Powerade comes along um, and since then, and you know, the, the major challenger brand in that space, firstly, there's a, a challenger product, which is coconut water. Um, you know, there was the, the coconut water wars, I think is what they call it, when uh, Vitecoco and Zico had their uprising a few years back. Um, since then, the major challenger brand would be Body Armor. They came in with a coconut water-based product um, and are really going head-to-head -head with the big players, taking on that sugar point taking on the general ingredient list and, and shooting for that natural, uh, more natural approach. And to your point, then we get to this, like this last segment of powders, which we fall into. Um, I think there's a couple of different ways you can slice it. Uh, there are certain players in the category who are really targeting specific use cases and types of consumers um, with say like a really high sodium content, for example, um, which, which like suits a certain type of customer. Then there are those who are coming at it more from a convenience and sustainability angle, which is, hey, you know, people want to buy a lot of stuff online right now. Um, people want to carry the things they need with them in their bag. They don't want to carry around uh, or be shipped a 12 pack of bottles of liquid. Um, and so powder just represents another format for them to consume a product that is good for them. Uh, and then the, the kind of last area, and I think probably the most important one to me is, is really efficacy. Those, those large ready to drink brands, every, everything I've named so far, across the board, their electrolyte ratios and their electrolyte content is uh, kind of <clears throat> sports drink-like is how I would put it. Um, and that's you know, good on some level. There are some studies that show that's great, but um, what this new cohort is really based on is oral rehydration solution, which is um, what is used in the developing world to rapidly rehydrate uh, severely dehydrated kids and generally people and have the same efficacy as a, an IV drip, you know, an intravenous drip to rehydrate you. Um, and it's that efficacy that we're bringing to the table that 
I don't think is available in a ready to drink product at the moment. Um, and so uh, we had to educate across that gap, say, hey, like this is fundamentally, yes, it's very similar ingredients to the products you're used to consuming, the, the old school sports drinks, but we're coming at it from a completely different angle. So much more effective, so much less sugar. And the, the balance of each of those ingredients is very specific in order to activate a process in your gut to absorb the water faster. So I, I, I think that research actually is from the 1970s, the, the oral rehydration solution, um, late 1970s. So it's been around for, for a long time, but it's been in a clinical setting. Um, you know, I grew up when I, when I was sick, uh, my mom would give me uh, like a thing made by a pharma company that was an electrolyte powder packet. It was gross, it was disgusting. Mm -hmm. And to this day, it makes me gag because I associate it with being sick, but it worked. And that really is like the, the sort of the basis for what we're doing in, in our lane in the powder segment is like, hey, this stuff works. Why don't we just make really effective products, but then really focus on how can we make them the experience better for the consumer? And how can we simplify and educate along the way? Because a lot of people just don't understand all of the ingredients they're putting in their body. So, you know, you said it earlier, trust. Trust is my number one goal. We want to be the most trusted health brand in America. And uh, as long as people trust us, they're going to keep buying what we make. And so that's a feedback loop that we've got to keep, you know, doing our part and then they'll do theirs. I love that. I love that. So uh, with, with setting the stage and kind of sharing that, you know, full evolution of the product and brand and, and mission, how did you connect with Jai? How did you quit your job to go all in on, on this business, especially if you're in Silicon Valley, you're in tech, you know, to make a huge transition into food and beverage or, you know, I guess supplements. How did you make that jump? Yeah, so I guess to, to put on my advice hat, don't do, don't do what I did. <laughs> don't quit your job without knowing what you're going to do after. I did not know that I would be working on Hydrant. Um, it, it turned out that it was an idea that was in the back of my mind the whole time, but it took me a few months to, to figure it out. Uh, precious months of burn rates, personal burn rates that I burned through. Um, so to me, I come from a family that has a... a fairly entrepreneurial um, lean, shall we say. And so uh, very supportive of myself and my siblings kind of doing what what feeds us all versus um, the thing we're sort of supposed to do, if you'd like. Um, so the jump, while a little bit daunting for the right, right time for me, again, to me, it came down to learning. How can I learn quicker? Um, I didn't feel like I was learning at a pace that I liked uh, after a couple of years in my previous job. And so I found a way to, to learn more faster, basically. Um, and along the way, I was introduced to Jay by a mutual friend. So Jay, Jay is probably a more interesting story. I think. <laughs> he is my co-founder now. Uh, and I was introduced to him late summer of 2018. At that point, I had a V1 product, uh, a V1 brand, a website doing like a nominal amount of revenue. Um, and kind of was getting to this point where I was like, wow, I, I need to raise money to make this thing go. I have conviction that this brand and this product has like a, a lot of potential. I've never fundraised before. That's not where my skill set lies. Um, so Jay had just started at Wharton, uh, the, the MBA program there. He was, he dropped out three weeks in, took his tuition money out and invested it into Hydrant. And that then became wow. our sort of pre-seed capital. So he dropped out like everything was just dropped. He moved from Philadelphia up to New York uh, and started coming into WeWork, updated his LinkedIn to co-founder of, of Hydrant. It was crazy for both of us. I mean, we, we really didn't know each other that well at that point. And 
Um, we got phenomenally lucky that our, our working partnership is really excellent. And we, we, the way we look at it is we cover quite different areas of the business. So you can probably tell I'm fairly product focused and brand focused. Um, and Jay comes from this background in consulting and private equity. Uh, so he really brings that financial rigor um, and kind of business sense to the table. So um, he really works. What, on what was it that I mean to, to to drop out of Wharton and put your tuition money into a business like this? What was it? What was there something compelling that happened? Was it the product and brand that it is today, or was it literally just a powdered uh, V one? So so the the brand existed. It was like an older version of the brand, still called Hydrant. Um, I, I think for Jay. Uh, he felt that this space had a ton of potential. And that, that was really where it started was uh, he saw products internationally in the powdered hydration space uh, kind of showing early signs of success. He had tried a few himself with friends and was introduced to this concept of what, what he calls hacking hydration as a way of reducing his caffeine consumption. And you know he came from that world of finance where there was a lot of coffee being drunk. So to him, it, it was a sort of a healthy way to get a step ahead in life. Um, and so he had been trying to start something himself, but had no idea where to start on the product development <coughs> side of things uh, and, and kind of was struggling to get past that stage. So then our mutual friends sort of put two and two together that we were both thinking about the same types of products. So, well, hey, why don't you buy his product, try it, and then I'll introduce you. Uh, we got introduced, we headed off, realized that there was a lot of synergy there. and. Uh, then he he kind of went all in. I will say uh, to Jay's credit, he's he's very much an all in kind of guy. There's no there's no half measures. So um, it was a, a big move. Re uh, I love that, and I mean, so so he he drops out of school, puts the tuition money into the business. You guys are starting. Is it just D to C online Amazon, uh, no retail, and and how did you guys really kick off the business? Yeah, so it was just direct consumer initially, no Amazon. Um, and that was because I think we were initially a little hesitant to go to Amazon. Back then, there was, uh, I say back then, maybe this still exists, but there, there was some hesitation for brands to go early to Amazon um, because you don't build brands there, or at least that was the, the, the thesis. I think to some extent that's gone now, and most people say, hey, it's where people are looking for products, you better be on Amazon. Um, and I, I would support that myself. But uh, so we started on direct consumer. For us early on, what's what's weird about the hydration category is you can be so many different things to so many different types of people. Uh, you know, you could have a customer in Texas who likes to go gardening and is in their 60s. You can have a customer in their 20s in New York who parties on the weekend and you know goes to the gym every morning. Um, how do you speak to those people and where where do you focus to begin with? So we we spent a lot of that first kind of pre-seed capital on honing the value props and the target audience um, to sort of start this marketing flywheel going and learning you know, things as simple as, okay, if we market to someone based on, uh, let's say, drinking it the morning after a, a night out of partying, what's the retention curve like versus someone who's using it for a more wellness-focused uh, approach? Um, and that, that made us, helped us make some decisions. Then very quickly, within all of a three months, we turned around and raised a seed round um, from a number of angel investors and uh, the Sixers Innovation Lab down in Philadelphia. And that was another sort of like stepping point for us to, to like grow bigger, introduce new products and uh, a rebrand.
Amazing. And so gaining traction online, starting to work D2C. I know you guys also have a pretty impressive retail footprint. Can you talk about how you've gone on the channel and what retail has looked like for you guys? Yeah. So um, we were talking about Omnichannel from day one. We felt that there was this playbook for direct consumer that, you know, you would see the the Harrys, the Caspers, the Warby Parkers use to, to, you know, very successfully. And we noticed that, you know, firstly, as a food product, we're in a slightly different business. And, and secondly, there was a lot more saturation of uh, those, mar those marketing channels. So we knew we would have to diversify at some point. Um, we opened Whole Foods Northeast region. So it's like 47 stores in, uh, I want to say September of 2019 um, and started to just learn retail. Because again, he doesn't have a background in CPG. I don't have a background in CPG. Um, but we, we sort of opened those 47 doors to start experimenting, learning about placements. Um, we hired a VP of sales that year as well, like in December. Uh, to like accelerate the learnings, bring someone in who had the experience working with powdered beverages um, and very quickly realized, okay, retail is really interesting because you're able to um, effectively not pay to acquire a customer in the way that you would with Facebook. Um, and so this became an important part of our strategy to grow the business efficiently. Um, and so we started to figure out like how should we be doing this should we be rolling out our product regionally should we be rolling it out in certain types of retailers what are the types of customers we should be be focused on acquiring here um one of the biggest learnings for us was was going from direct consumer to to being in retail that um i, I would say is painful and, and i would recommend to anyone who makes that jump to really kind of spend as much time thinking about this as possible a lot, a lot of brands cannot pull it off and there's the issue with pricing format for retail, how retail functions and how that also might cannibalize D2C sales if you're pricing a certain way in retail right. versus D2C. Co. Can you share some learnings there? Because not a lot of brands can do it successfully. So it's really interesting how you guys have executed. Yeah. So, I mean, the first packaging to a point packaging was was huge for us. So we, our brand is quite sort of minimalist. It's, it's, it focuses on on being simple so that people trust us um, and, and trust, you know, it evokes what we're putting in the product as well. That's what we want to do. But when you have three seconds of someone's time on a retail shelf, is simple enough? And the answer is probably no. You need to start like thinking about, okay, how do I call out the major benefits and get the customer who's walking past really excited about picking it up? So that would be one. It's just like you have to strip your packaging and effectively rebuild from, from zero for retail if you have a very direct consumer-focused brand. Um, the second one is, again, you nailed it, pricing. We kind of price-wise had no idea going in what other products were going to be on the shelf next to us. And this was maybe a little bit unique to our category in that in most of the early sets we were going into, the set was brand new, didn't exist. So, you know, we can see what some of our closer competitors were doing in other stores, but at a specific retailer, if we were in an opening set, we had no idea what the other products were going to be priced at. And um, I think we've made some early mistakes there where we like priced a little bit too high, but it was also a function of, hey, we're not at a scale where we can really bring bring the cost down. Um, and and that, that's been a painful learning process where we really need to smarten up about knowing or, or predicting where the people next to us on the shelf are going to land price-wise so that we make sense in the set. Because if, if you're not going to perform, you shouldn't, you just shouldn't really be in the shelf. Um, right. it, it doesn't serve the brand to be there.
Super interesting. And then how about going from like a natural to a conventional or a mass? Also, any any like recommendations or tips for D2C brands looking to transition into retail? I mean, it scares the hell out of me. Uh, just the scale is, is insane. Um, so, you know, opening orders are going to be the same kind of, it could be in, in a, an order of magnitude larger than what you're doing in an average month on your website. Um, if things go well, I, I think also the, the scale of what can go wrong changes pretty drastically. I'll give a very simple example. Luckily, this is, it, it didn't go too wrong. So that's why I'm comfortable telling the story. Um, there was some issue with the warehouse we were working with to ship out to like 47, maybe it's 50 different Walmart distribution centers. So we have all of our products in one warehouse. It needs to go to 47 different Walmart distribution centers to then go to uh, I believe it was 2,700 stores. Um, and for whatever reason, we missed the truck that was supposed to go to those, uh, to take it to the different uh, 47 different distribution centers the day when the trucks left. So we then had to, in order to make our on-shelf day, we had to get our own transportation. Direct shipments to 50 warehouses? It was insane. I mean, Holy crap. Had, <laughs> even even a, a sprinter van, I think, at one point was used. And this is like, again, at a scale that we can't comprehend is across the whole of the United States. You, you can't, I can't just rent a truck and do it myself. You have to become a logistics company in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. We, we pulled it off. But um, that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that keeps me up at night um, being in the retail world. But it is so rewarding to see people interacting with your product in a setting that you have like no control over. It's scary, but rewarding. Um, and, and just to see it working, right? See people picking it up off the shelf and, um, coming back to us online saying, hey, like I tried this, I found it in Walmart or I found it in Whole Foods. Um, it, it's a really cool feeling. And when, I think when you know how to execute in retail, it's really, uh, it, it, it's an amazing channel that oftentimes, you know, is less celebrated because D2C is, is very, you know, appealing. Um, but when you're getting weekly orders for those POs and, you know, product is selling and turning off the shelf, um, it's great real estate. It's great marketing. Great way to also acquire customers without having to pay for for each each acquired customer. Um, you know, the the other thing I'd like to ask you because we don't we're not as heavy in D to C, but D to C has evolved over the last ten years. There's been you know I would say amazing opportunity to acquire customers on Facebook, on TikTok, uh, organically on LinkedIn. Um, for you guys, you know what, especially with some of the privacy. Uh, policies and, and things that are changing every single day. How do you think about customer acquisition now, whether it's organic versus paid? Um, where are you guys finding some, some success and what do you recommend people do? Because um, it's incredibly daunting with with everything changing so so fast every, uh, yeah. every day. Yeah, so I think it partly depends on your, your stage and your product life cycle, I suppose, or your company's life cycle. So for us, Facebook and Instagram was, was where we started. So powerful to get quick feedback loops. So uh, as an example, the first version of our product went out. Uh, we started getting feedback from customers. It was like, hey, it's a little too salty. It's not dissolving perfectly. Great, back to the lab, fixed it. Version two goes out. Still getting some more feedback. And then we get to version three. Also learning, okay, people don't seem to respond to this messaging. They do respond to this messaging. So Facebook and Instagram for that, I, I think it's hard to beat. Um, but I, once you get to a certain level of scale, uh, you know, it, it's almost cliche to talk about, but you can't be so reliant on one or two platforms. You really have to diversify where you're bringing in your customers. For us, I almost view retail as its own awareness channel, just because 
by being in, you know, we're in HEB in Texas right now. Um, and we have like a great team on the ground putting up all these extra displays. Those eyeballs in HEB, which is a trusted brand to them already, uh, is it's like getting those same sorts of ad placements across Facebook, Instagram, Google, TikTok, whatever it may be. Um, so I, I view retail as being something that lifts our online business. You mentioned earlier, like the worry about commercialization. You've got to be careful about how you price and think that part through. But generally, what we've seen is like it lifts the whole business to have that extra awareness point. But um, from an online only standpoint, we're really looking at diversifying to a place where we're not beholden to, um, you know, effectively the paid marketing spend all the time. You've got to transition to that more organic force. It's it's not an easy thing to solve. Uh, you know, it's not something that happens overnight. So uh, the other piece is, you know, it takes so much time uh, and conviction, like building community, for example. You can't suddenly have that start to work and build word of mouth in a month. It takes a year, maybe more, to build like a solid community of people. And you can't be building it just for the like return on investment. It has to be like bringing value to those customers. So um, it's really looking at what are those long-term initiatives? How do you plant the seeds for those early in your trajectory when yes, you're gonna be reliant on Facebook and Instagram, how do you plant the seeds for those long-term initiatives so that when you kind of tap out on Facebook and Instagram, you're able to just kind of morph very seamlessly into, uh, you know, getting the return from those early investments. Love that. It's amazing, John. Um, well, I, I want to be cognizant of your time, but this is uh, just so helpful the, uh, to, to, to wrap up a couple uh, quick questions. Number one, you know, where is Hydrant three, five, 10 years from now when things get really tough and you're having, you know, a day where you miss one of the biggest, uh, you know, shipping opportunities of your life when you're, you have like really low moments, what, what's driving you and, and where do you hope that the, this company will be in, you know, five, 10, 15 years? My, my North Star is to be the most trusted health brand in America. That's, that's really like what I keep coming back to. I think what we're building is a platform for health and wellness with hydration as that key pillar. And we're finding other areas that are sometimes overlooked um, to help support people in their daily lives to just live a healthier, uh, more enjoyable lifestyle. So that's what I keep coming back to. Uh, and that's the like three to 10 year plan. Amazing. And then what advice would you have for potential founders who might want to quit their job, move out of tech or finance or whatever it might be and go do something, uh, you know, radical and, you know, pursue a, a dream or, or a business that they really want to, you know, go after? I always come back to this idea of, of ship faster. Um, we did our, we took maybe five, five to seven months for our first iteration of the product. Could have been done in three, could have launched sooner could have had real feedback from real customers because, as I said, we had this V1, took seven months to make it perfect, and then we did a V2 anyway because it wasn't perfect. Just get it out there. It needs to be 70% uh, like done, and you need to be a little bit embarrassed by it, and uh, your early adopters are going to be forgiving on that. They want to be on the journey with you, so just move as fast as you possibly can. Love it. John, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, where, can, where else can we find Hydrant um, you know, just around the country? Drinkhydrant.com is the, the main spot. We're also on Amazon. You can find us at HEB in Texas, CVS, GNC, Walmart. Uh, and I'm sure there are others that I've missed out here. <laughs> those, those are the, the headlines. Epic. Thank you so much, John. And uh, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll, we'll connect soon either on the East Coast or, or in LA. Sounds good. Thanks, David. Cheers, man. Bye.